Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 21 of the Benzo Free Podcast. For the next two episodes, our format is going to look a lot different. I had a wonderful two-hour in-studio conversation with Dr. Stephen Wright on Saturday, June the 1st. I attempted to edit it down for time, but I just couldn't find anything to cut. So, I decided to leave it mostly as it is and cut the rest of our format for now. This conversation is in two parts, the first of which we will listen to today. If you want to see an overview of the subjects we discussed, please take a look at the show notes. But before we get into the interview, please remember that the Benzo Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. That's it for the intro. Let's get on to our feature. Stephen Wright, MD, is a residency-trained family physician with a 36-year clinical career. Active in addiction medicine, board-certified 31 years, and medical pain management 15 years, he focuses on issues related to controlled substances, addiction, and medical pain management through consulting, speaking, advocacy, policy development, education, medical provider assessment, supervision, and medical legal work. His clinical interests include the neurophysiology and treatment of pain and addiction, non-opioid analgesia, opioids, benzodiazepines, cannabis, adverse consequences, best practices, and systems of care. He has a particular interest in benzodiazepines, having developed, run, and presented at the International Benzodiazepine Symposium in 2017 in Bend, Oregon. He is the medical consultant for the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices and is involved in a variety of related projects. He presents across the country and is editor and author, co-author of two chapters of a book on benzodiazepines currently being written. Let's hear from Dr. Wright. Okay, so here we are in the studio, and I'm here with Dr. Stephen Wright. Hello, how are you today? All right, uh, good morning. Good morning to you. Would you like me to call you Dr. Wright for this, or Steve, or what's best for you? Steve is perfect. Steve is perfect. I'm going to go with that then, thanks. You know what, let's just start out with telling me a little bit about your background, especially your medical background. Okay, sure. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest and went to school there, went to uh, Case Western Reserve Medical School after college. Uh, and uh, entered into family medicine. Uh, my family medicine residency was in Fort Collins, Colorado, and graduated in 1982. Way back in the day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that uh, my kids think that the, uh, that was when the dinosaurs were still struggling in the La Brea tar pits. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I started out in family medicine and uh, continued on through, actually, till 2013, in a primary care practice. Uh, I started doing addiction medicine in uh, 1987, uh, 31 years ago. A group okay. had come down, uh, wanted to put in a treatment center, and I told them I had no 
uh, no training, no experience, didn't inhale, got the job, and uh, <laughs> loved it, loved working uh, in the field of addiction. And, of course, that's back in the day when there was limited options in terms of treatment processes. Uh, but I loved it. And through the uh, late 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s, uh, started to really recognize that pain was a significant part of the experience of individuals with addiction. And I could see, too, that pain was not well managed. This was also the days when uh, pain was described as being the needed to be regarded as the fifth vital sign. And that's actually true huh. that it is that important, but we, uh, back in that particular day, or uh, a lot of individuals uh, uh, looked at this as uh, really an opportunity to jump onto opioids almost exclusively. Can, and can, that, you, can you back up again? You said fifth vital sign. What, what do you mean by that? Well, the fifth vital sign, so the vital signs are objective signs like your blood pressure, your pulse, your temperature, uh, and your respiratory rate. Fifth vital sign, a term that was used to say it is that important to track on every visit, okay. not just here and there or when the patient brought it up. And so, uh, and it is that important, uh, but first of all, it's not objective, like mm -hmm. blood pressure is objective. Uh, and second is that you, there was this subtext of uh, if you had significant pain, you had to have opioids, and that indeed uh -huh. really was not the case. And so we went down that road, and, and so I was actually uh, in North Carolina working about 15 miles away from the third highest OxyContin writer in the nation, and I became the expert witness on six of the 23 deaths uh, that were involved in his work and saw how pain management was so poorly applied. So I, I love the neurophysiology mm -hmm. of who we are and why we do what we do, uh, hence the involvement in addiction. And that was certainly true in relation to pain. Saw that pain management was not taking place very uh, very well uh, in the general, you know, prescribing, uh, you know, physician groups out there. And thought because of my uh, addiction training that I might be able to sort all of that out. And so I started doing pain management about 15 years ago. Okay. And, uh, continued primary care uh, with pain management and addiction uh, over these years. And along the way then, of course, uh, there's cannabis and yeah. benzodiazepines uh, uh, because individuals with addiction, with pain, certainly have mood disorders. Uh, benzodiazepines uh, have the potential for addiction, even though that's rare. Uh, and along the way, of course, individuals in my practice got treated with benzodiazepines and now I recognize how I didn't do the kind of job that I would do at this time uh, knowing what I now know. And that's a perfect transition I think because um, of course what brought us together and connected us was your concerns about benzodiazepines and how they're being handled both in the medical community and outside. When was your or was there an aha moment or when did you first start to see that Maybe these are being overprescribed. Maybe they're not being handled right, or that withdrawal is not being handled correctly. When did you start to notice this? Well, I noticed it in particular uh, when a patient of mine, uh, his first name was John, came in. And he told me that he was having difficulties with uh, the, the benzodiazepines that he had been prescribed uh, in terms of side effects and how to get off of those. And it was the experience of working with that gentleman 
uh, and the challenges of moving off of the medication. It took a long time uh, that I learned that th- I, I didn't know what I thought I knew okay. about all of this. And we in family medicine grew up with a sense of these are relatively benign. Okay. We can go on forever, uh, that kind of a thing. And, and, and it, there is a sense that like medicines that work primarily outside of the central nervous system, that if the studies showed that it works for a short period of time pretty well, you, the assumption is reasonable that it could work for a very long period of time as well. Well, there's a difference, as yeah. it turns <laughs> out, uh, between uh, peripherally, predominantly peripherally acting agents and neuroactive agents that I was learning. And so I learned through him that what I thought I knew, I didn't, uh, and that there was a whole lot more to this. And then about uh, three years or so ago, uh, I was contacted by an individual who, uh, in Bend, Oregon, uh, mm-hmm. Marjorie Merritt Carmen, right. who was had been struggling with coming off of benzodiazepines, was looking uh, to connect with somebody who had an interest in the in the field and concern in relation to the field. And ultimately, I was asked to be the medical director of a conference that was placed in Bend, Oregon, the International Benzodiazepine Symposium, uh, which uh, with which I was involved two and a half days involving speakers from all over, uh, including Ireland, and uh, talking about all of this. And there in particular, my eyes were open because uh, it was not just a few patients that I had in my mm-hmm. practice that opened my eyes, but the striking stories that I heard from people that were cogent, clear, right. and, 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 and not there to you know, grind an axe uh, mm-hmm. or to uh, you know, really altogether dismiss the medical community, but saying, right. hey... And you take a look at this, it is that bad, and perhaps you hadn't recognized it over a period of time, and perhaps it's not true for all individuals mm-hmm. taking benzodiazepines, but here is a subset of, of individuals, real human beings who suffered horribly, and we need to take care of these individuals in right. a new and unique way. Okay. That sounds great. Yeah, that and that actually... As I, I believe, Marjorie was also involved then in starting up the alliance. Is that correct? And Tibbs kind of led into that. How did that happen for the alliance? And I'm talking, of course, about the alliance for benzodiazepine best practices. Yeah, the alliance uh, actually uh, had its beginnings uh, through the symposium in Bend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marjorie didn't uh, start it, but it turns out that Bernie Silvernail and his right. uh, wife were there. Uh, as a part of the program, saw that what we're doing and wanted to do more uh, to change the prescribing practices. Out there, what I found is that there are many, many groups, uh, internet groups uh, of survivors. Uh, but what we found was that there wasn't a lot out there for prescribers uh, in right. terms of what is going on with the benz- benzodiazepine survivor group. And what do we do about that? And so the whole theme of the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices is to have a website and uh, actually a not-for-profit you know, organization that would 
address the prescribers in particular with the intention of limiting initiation of benzodiazepines, okay. limiting duration of use, and addressing withdrawal in a way that is effective as well as safe uh, and the best way to move through that process so suffering is minimized. Right. And that's our goal, uh, is to address uh, the prescribers in particular. And what kind of actions has the Alliance taken? Where, where have you made inroads? So we are looking at a variety of things, and we are active in a variety of things. So we have contracted with an organization called NEMA Research. Okay. And we have contracted them to do a couple of animal studies. Okay. I think it's worth uh, talking about that. Yeah, let's do that. The uh, one of the issues is is that uh, for benzodiazepine survivors, right, is that there are these strange symptoms, <laughs> <laughs> and I have to admit, when I bumped into that, I say, "Oh my gosh, what what is going on here?" And uh, and now I understand that the side effects, as well as the withdrawal adverse effects, uh, occur in predominantly three different domains in okay. the way that I would categorize them uh, from a clinical or medical perspective. And those are the psychological, correct, uh, the neurophysiological, okay. and the somatic. Uh, the psychological or the obvious depression, anxiety, suicidality, okay. uh, derealization, depersonalization, uh, things that I'm sure your viewers know very, very well. Correct. Second is also a category that they know very well, uh, too, and that's the neurophysiologic. Symptoms that have a neurophysiologic basis but are not psychological. So, for example, okay. uh, the hypersensitivity to smell and sound, and uh, certainly seizures are neurophysiologic right. in, uh, in, in origin as well. And then there's the category of somatic. Uh, partly, uh, these could well be neurophysiologic as well, uh, but there's a twist to it. So these are be, would perhaps be the gastrointestinal symptoms, the cardiovascular symptoms, the physical, more peripheral, outside of the central nervous system mm -hmm. symptoms that, uh, that are going on. So it turns out the benzodiazepine receptor has been well characterized uh, in, in terms of the GABA receptor Correct. over many, many years. Right. Uh, then in 1992, a new receptor was found called the translocator protein, and it was, it's in the periphery of the, of the body. It is not in the central nervous system. At least there's not a large representation there. And it's called a translocator protein, but benzodiazepines are attached to it. Okay. This is a receptor that's all over the place. If you look at a PET scan, you can see representation all over the body. It exists in mitochondria. That's different. Yeah, you mentioned that when we had coffee the other day of, of the peripheral, the mitochondria coming into play, something I hadn't heard of at all. And I've been really curious to get a little more information on that from you. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought this up. Well, I don't have a whole lot of information okay. to give that, uh, because I don't understand it very well. But w just the location and the fact that we know that receptors change as a result of exposure to an agent, uh, they downregulate and uh, neuroadapt in ways that probably are generative of the side effects and certainly generative of the withdrawal effects 
that occur with benzodiazepines. But because they are located peripherally, because they are located in mitochondria, that might actually explain why we see these peculiar symptoms uh, that we see with benzodiazepines in terms of the side effects okay. of whether, as well as the withdrawal effects. So, can, can we back up one second and talk? When you say peripheral, you mean outside the central nervous system? Is that what you're referring to? That's right. Uh, so the mitochondria technically are called organelles, and uh, they're not organs. Those are the big things like liver and heart mm-hmm. and those sort of things. Organelles are structures within cells, so they're very tiny. And mitochondria are actively involved in generating uh, energy in the body. Okay. Uh, and so you can see immediately, since the translocator protein is on mitochondrial, that it might have something to do with energy production mm-hmm. uh, and things like that that uh, could be relevant to the side effects that we see. Okay. Interesting. Thank you. So back to the NEMA. Yes project that uh, the Alliance has really contracted for, and that is the uh, animal studies that is looking at uh, the peripheral uh, translocator protein. And okay. uh, we're about halfway through that particular, uh, uh, one of the studies anyway, and we will see what those results are. And okay. it looks, uh, early results seem to show that about 60% of the animals show evidence of physiologic dependence. Okay. So what does this mean then versus like the effect on the GABA receptors within the central nervous system? Why is this important and what does it mean? Is it, does it change treatment? Does it t- help us understand better the functioning of the drugs on the body and what happens? What are we going to gain from this? Ultimately, over a period of time, it may change treatment, but that'll be okay. way down the road. For purposes of today, however, one of the most important things in my mind is it changes, has the potential of changing how medical providers look at patients who come in describing these peculiar array of symptoms that previously we couldn't explain. When we see uh, symptoms, we want to be able to explain it on some sort of physiologic or neurophysiologic basis. We didn't have that uh, previously. We think we're approaching that with the descriptions that will come out of the peripheral benzodiazepine receptors. Okay. And when that happens, patients, when they show up with uh, to medical providers, are going to be far more believable because there is a physiologic basis. There is a category of uh, psychological problems called a somatic symptom disorder. Yeah, we had talked about that previously. Could you explain that a little more? Yeah, uh, this is uh, uh, this goes back to the old term psychosomatic medicine, but currently the DSM-5 has a category of somatic symptom disorder. Now, in in technical terms, mm-hmm. uh, it it has validity, but in practical terms, right. it actually for individuals that don't understand this, uh, basically, uh, medical providers are going to think patients are crazy, mm-hmm. fundamentally. It's a real challenge. So you have the concept that psychological processes result in somatic symptoms. Okay. The peculiar hypersensitivities, the pain. So it's like the power of the mind, and the mind can create physical, physiological symptoms within the body. Okay. But but technically speaking, however, DSM-5 says you can have a valid neurophysiologic 
mm-hmm. basis, but the symptoms themselves be so overwhelming and causing so much functional disturbance, uh, you can have the diagnosis of somatic symptom disorder. In other words, it's very real. There's a very real neurophysiologic basis, but functionally and effectively, it overwhelms an individual's life. Now, it gets real muddy, of course. You know, when you have heightened anxiety, that functionally affects your life significantly as well, and it's not that doesn't sit in the somatic symptom disorder. Well, and and as we've learned, most of the symptoms of withdrawal are actually exaggerated versions of the symptoms that um, common anxiety often creates. And so it seems like it might might be the same general mechanisms that are at play, but, you know, elevated. Yeah. And and that's my perception, is that uh, individuals uh, who are benzodiazepine survivors have a hypersensitivity. That doesn't mean they're crazy. No. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't mean they're, you know off balance uh, in any particular way, it's very real. It's very real in the same sense that fibromyalgia is real. And it, a good it's, example. It's useful to follow that the story there because I think that's the same story we're going to see here too. Okay. And fibromyalgia used to be felt to be a psychological disorder with a physical expression. We now know that that is not the case, uh, that... It has neurophysiologic foundation with psychological ramifications. Okay. And so uh, you actually can identify substances in a spinal tap fluid. Uh, We don't do that. Uh, People don't don't enjoy that as much as you think they People don't show up for that for some reason. You try to schedule that, nobody shows up. I can't figure out why. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, for the few people that have allowed for that to happen, you can actually see those changes. Eventually, I think we're going to see that. And and what we don't have in our uh, lexicon, our language Mm -hmm. for uh, medical providers, is what I think is very real, that there is a benzodiazepine injury syndrome. And I've kind of moved away from calling it a benzodiazepine neurologic syndrome because it might not be. It may have a lot to do with this peripheral receptor stuff, okay. which is not necessarily neurologic, but is on the mitochondrial. So, But they're very real. And right now, we don't have the words for that. Uh, we do have the words for somatic symptom disorder. So it's right. easy to kind of transition back to that roll our eyes when we see patients that uh, present in that particular way, discredit that. That has important research uh, implications too. So for example, if I'm doing research on side effects or problems with uh, withdrawal, I may discount those symptoms and not record those because right. I think that there's it's a different disorder and not related to the benzodiazepines. And I think that's part of the problem that we have had with previous research. I'm glad you brought that up because that's such a function. In fact, I wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago about terminology within the benzo community. A lot of people get very um, sensitive about certain terminology. We've talked about addiction and dependence before, and we'll touch on that in a little bit. But also, like you mentioned, many of us call our our disease or illness benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome. But that was just named. That was what. That was the name that I don't know if it came from Ashton or it came from before. 
was given to it. We've talked about that, and you said that's not exactly a technical term for it. Um, you also just mentioned the somatic symptom disorder, and that's there are other terms, but finding the right term to call what happened to us, I think is really important, and to find that common term so we can all share it, and so that also our physicians will believe us when we're telling them this is an actual illness. Well, that's absolutely right. And, and the problem is that there's no clear-cut boundary between withdrawal syndrome, mm-hmm. which has an implication of it's going to resolve. Okay. And benzodiazepine injury syndrome, which gives the implication that it could be here for a very long time or even permanently. Okay. And, you know, but it's a boundary problem that that can be worked out. So, for example, we have diabetes and prediabetes. Okay. Uh, You know, we kind of sort out and say, yeah, it's... Uh, pre-diabetes or mild diabetes, I mean, Mm -hmm. some of those things. But I think that there's a real injury there uh, that occurs with benzodiazepines in a subset of individuals. And in a subset of that subset of individuals, it can be very severe and very durable. And we need to listen to that. And frankly, in my practice, I didn't. And you hinted at a little bit on your your previous practice and how you handled benzodiazepine patients. Um, would you like to elaborate on that? Because did did the terminology actually even addiction come into play? Since that is a specialty of yours, did you group benzodiazepine patients in with other addiction patients? And I, I just like to you know dig into that a little deeper. Yeah, uh, benzodiazepines was always different. Uh, okay, it's, it, you know. It was back in 1984 that David Smith uh, from Haight-Ashbury actually put together the first uh, definition of uh, addiction that I think has validity, and that is compulsion, right. thinking about it all day long, loss of control. Today I'm going to have two, and I actually have 20, continuation in spite of adverse consequences. I get loaded, I plow my car into the tree, I swear I won't do it again, and then I do, or something similar like coming off a ladder or something like that. Individuals that showed up with challenges with benzodiazepines, they didn't talk about things like that. Right. Uh, that's not, that was not their experience. These uh, individuals with the disease of addiction uh, have this real ambivalence about, uh, about stopping because of a background craving or urge to use that's disconnected from the medical indications. So, for example, okay. opioids, you know, I want to use them. Uh, as an addict, uh, but I'm not really focused on using them for pain. Uh, right. You know, there's that kind of a thing. Benz- uh, individuals, the vast majority of individuals with benzodiazepine-related issues did not express that kind of experience. Now, the thing of it is, however, we recognize that addicts lie. Uh, and yeah. So uh, one can easily then translate that, well, our benzodiazepine users are lying about this. But the fact that... <laughs> Virtually nobody with benzodiazepine use talked about that. Uh, to me, said, well, they can't all be lying. And right. they probably are more likely true about this particular aspect of their experience. Now, so addiction is defined in that way, but addiction isn't the only way people use medications inappropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have the, the terminology of non-medical use. Okay. So misuse would be, I'm using it medically for the correct reason, 
but in an inappropriate way. In other words, I have pain, I'm taking the opioids mm -hmm. for pain, and then I double dose, which is right. misused because it hurts so darn much. Non-medical use means using it for a reason other than the okay. medical indication. So, for example, with uh, benzodiazepine use that's non-medical in, in character, uh, individuals might use it to amplify the effect of alcohol. Okay. Amplify the effect of other substances like opioids. Or to minimize the alcohol withdrawal response. Mm -hmm. Or to minimize the intensity of the high of a stimulant or cocaine. That's non-medical use. And we saw that with some uh, frequency. But that's not addiction to benzodiazepines. Right. They're using it to amplify the other substances. Benzodiazepine addiction, in my view, over-experienced in 31 years. I only saw it once. And I saw it in an individual. I knew I had uh, benzodiazepine addiction in this particular individual because mm -hmm. I was trying to taper him. Uh, I was trying to taper him off of clonopin. Uh, and his girlfriend had it in a lockbox. Okay. And he kept running out early. Well, eventually we found out that he was tapping out the, you know, the little pin and the hinge in the back. So oh, the lock no. in the front was unnecessary and he would get to, I said, that's somebody. That's addiction behavior. That's addiction. Okay. Uh, but that kind of a thing is, is really quite rare. There's another side to it because that's also a disease. And so trying to find the balance of, hey, we're not addicts, but at the same point, addiction is an actual medical condition, you know? And so I, do you see what I'm getting at? It's like... I think I do. Okay. Uh, I think it's important not to participate in the stigma right. connected to addiction. Uh, and I would encourage individuals that are benzodiazepine survivors uh, to, uh, to not participate in the stigma there as well. Addiction is a disease, just like diabetes is a disease and hypertension is a disease. What is a disease? A disease is a, a, a set of symptoms with a predictable course if treated, a predictable course if not treated. Okay. Uh, and very typically, when we say disease, we're talking about something with some what of an understood physiology or neurophysiology. When we use the term syndrome, we've got a collection of symptoms where we may not truly understand yet the physiology or, or neurophysiology of, of, of the set of symptoms. That's why I call it benzodiazepine injury syndrome. Okay. Because we've not yet put our arms around the ideologic or causative uh, factors in the, uh, in, in the situation. So I recommend not, you know, uh, participating in the stigma uh, of, of addiction but the, the issue in relation to benzodiazepines, it's simply not accurate. Exactly, exactly. And being inaccurate is more than just an academic exercise mm -hmm. because what happens is, is that individuals that are struggling with benzodiazepines and are mischaracterized as having addiction to it are put into an addiction treatment process Bingo. Yeah. which does not work is mysterious to the individuals that are trying to grapple with all this because they're sitting in groups with individuals talking about typically other substances and the inability to control 
their use of those substances because of a craving background. And individuals with benzodiazepine-related problems, uh, they kind of meet one of the criteria of addiction, but, but I'll explain not really. And that is interest in or attempts to stop are unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a criteria for addiction. Uh, that's true for benzodiazepine users because it's hard. Right. And there are no skilled or very few skilled medical providers to help them to do that. The difference is with addiction, there's a craving that keeps individuals from uh, their ability to stop. Okay. And that doesn't exist in the benzodiazepine survivor community predominantly. That's where the difference really lies. And so the criteria are not clear enough in my mind and probably need to be revised uh, to say that the background of why you have attempts to stop that are unsuccessful is craving mm-hmm. rather than just not explaining the background of that at all. That's good. When you showed up at the house for a recording today, we were upstairs and and it was funny because we started just talking and chatting and all of a sudden um, Steve interrupted me and said, you know, this is already the half the interview. <laughs> and so we decided to stop our conversation and come to the basement to the studio and start recording this because when the two of us just start talking, we can talk for like three hours straight without even noticing we're doing minimum. it. Minimum. Minimum. <laughs> you're right. Minimum. And it just goes on and on. It's been wonderful. And so I thought we better record this. This is a great conversation. So, but that is, that is a big factor. And and it's such a it's such a nightmare scenario for so many of the patients because right at the time when you need a rational brain at the time most in your life you need a rational mind is when you don't have one it's when our emotions are extreme we're highly sensitive and so terminology like addiction and not being believed or not being um believed you know trusted by our doctors or to be you know even facing scorn and disbelief this is a real good topic to talk about. And being a physician, I'd really like to get your take. How, how do you work with, or how do you, what would you tell the patient who's out there and says, I'm never going to trust a doctor again. I'm not going to go there. They don't know what they're talking about. They got me on this drug. They don't know how to get me off. How do you help them? How do you, how do you, what do you tell them to do to maybe change that so that maybe they could have a good physician in their corner to help them? Well, it's really unfortunate that, That's the circumstance that we're in right now. We do not have very many benzo-wise medical providers out there, uh, frankly. And, and, you know, I was one of those Mm -hmm. individuals. However, I think it's my personal experience with coming to a new understanding about this might be useful. And what I found was is that uh, for myself that when I listened to the patient— I was able to there you go. help them more than when I listened to what I presumed my knowledge was all about. And the the issue is, is this. We are in an era right now of so-called evidence-based medicine. And okay. evidence-based medicine has a lot of value, actually. Mm-hmm. However, evidence-based research means that you're trying to look at a group of individuals that are fairly similar. Okay. And so you exclude as a researcher a variety of individuals because they have cancer and might die during the study or this, that, or the other. They have diabetes or something you that would kind of get in the way of identifying the results that you're trying to figure out. 
and then you end up with a particular study result. The problem is, is that particular study result is sort of generic. And the person okay. sitting in front of you is not a generic patient. Right. They are a human being with a vast and wide array of experiences uh, and challenges that we as medical providers need to listen to. And so one of the big problems with evidence-based medicine is we, we put people into categories mm -hmm. and say, for example, you are an addict. And what I've learned over the last few years is that just the voicing of that particular language is problematic. You are a person with addiction. You are so much more than like your that. addiction. Yeah. You are a person with a benzodiazepine challenge. And that challenge is not the disease of addiction. So what I found in my own personal story of transition was the key element was actually listening. Okay. And so interviewing medical providers, physicians or PAs or NPs, I, th I think is a good way to go uh, in terms of identifying individuals that have the potential for assisting you. And more important than being currently benzo-wise and having a strong knowledge base, because very few mm -hmm. are going to be out there, is the willingness to listen to you as a specific patient, and secondarily, the willingness uh, to acquire information that's out there, such okay. as the Ashton Manual, in uh, using that kind of a resource to uh, to develop a, a plan that you can work out together. Right. The problem with some medical providers is we have the MDity syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> and if we have what we think is strong knowledge about mm -hmm. benzodiazepines, uh, we think, oh, you know, reduction 25% per week, per month, we're going to get you there. Uh, and that may work, you know, in the studies for more than 50% of individuals, but it's horrific yeah. for a substantial minority of individuals. We don't know what that number is. Is it 10%? Is it 30%? Uh, in terms of individuals that are ha likely to have a terrible experience by a rapid reduction like that. But if we have the MDity syndrome and we think we know <laughs> what's right for you and we're going to tell you what yep. to do uh, and not listen, that's probably more problematic than anything because those studies are out there. Those studies are out there yeah, where are. these are fairly rapid reductions. Uh, and then if it's unsuccessful, we blame the patient. Right. I mean, in effect, that's what we do. Well, it's an easy out. It's yeah. an easy out. You know, it's not my fault. And then what happens is that we don't learn from that because patients, and they probably left my practice too, said, mm -hmm. I can't deal with this guy. I'm just yeah. going to disappear and go elsewhere. And therefore, I, as a medical provider, think, well, they're non-compliant. Yeah. And it's their fault. And had they just stuck to it, they've been okay. Rather than I had a role in not paying attention to what was going on here. And I need to address that uh, in this particular case, right. as well as uh, for future patients I might have. Here is a way that benzodiazepine survivors and individuals with the disease of addiction are similar. All individuals in, in those two, I hate to use the word categories, but okay. those groups are very sensitive to how their medical providers respond to yes. them. 
uh, you, you, individuals with the disease of addiction certainly know that, and you as a benzodiazepine a survivor, if that's your situation or your family member, uh, know that very well. And when you see the eye roll and there's a relative disconnect from tracking your conversation, you know you've got somebody who really is is thinking not particularly favorably about the uh, about the validity of what you have right. just said. That individual, for for that particular medical provider, I think it's useful to conclude the interview and find somebody else. Understand. Because even if they have a knowledge base about benzodiazepines in certain respects, mm -hmm. the, the more important key is that they listen. Because wh what I found in my experience with working with individuals that are challenged with benzodiazepines and doing the withdrawal process is that it's an iter iterative process, okay. which means that you try something, and if it didn't work, you listen to the uh, patient, uh, and you find out. And what I found out was, uh, was true for me is that I would walk into the exam room and think, I know what we're going to do here now. Right. And if I put a pause on that and listen to the patient, very typically, even if the patient didn't have a direct suggestion, indirectly, I said, oh, that's the next step. The, uh, the next step was introduced either directly by the patient or indirectly by a reference uh, to, you know, so for example, waking up at 4 a.m. in the morning, that uh, issue that is connected with cortisol and polyvagal mechanisms, uh, technical terms, uh, but uh, can lead to some solutions there, even though the patient is not able to express that. How do I deal with the uh, early morning awakenings? It's funny thing. you say that. I woke this morning at 4 a.m., which is kind <laughs> of, it's kind of normal for me. I it did, happens. I didn't do that before, but I do that a lot now. Yeah, so. don't ask me to explain it very well. I don't but, know. But it does have, okay. it, it plays into the neurohormonal effects that I believe benzodiazepines ha okay. ha have placed individuals uh, in, into this horrible mix of uh, circumstances and symptoms that uh, we're trying to, those of us that are really interested want to get uh, to move out of that particular circumstance. So the best solution is don't start. Well, that would be. <laughs> uh, but there are reasons to start. Uh, so, you know, and some of those reasons are it is the best medicine for alcohol withdrawal. In a conversation we had previously, we had coffee a little while back, I mentioned to you that, you know, a lot of people think benzos just aren't good for anything, um, especially in the benzo community. I come from the standpoint of, no, benzos are still good for certain things. And especially for people who are dependent and want to taper, they need to be able to get these drugs to do a proper withdrawal. What do you see from your practice and from your research? Benzos are still um, efficient and utilized, and, and what should they still be used for for treatment? I do think benzodiazepines are valuable, and, and I do use the word valuable. Uh, when it comes to alcohol withdrawal, there's no substitute for the use of benzodiazepine in relation to avoidance of seizures and DTs, okay. delirium tremens, which I think is really important because those can be life-threatening. Uh, but of course, that's short-term use. 
uh, right. because alcohol withdrawal is very uh, short-term in terms of uh, days, uh, not even weeks. I think it's also useful to use during procedures uh, to uh, eliminate the memory or you know even yeah. the activity during the procedure. I really do not want to remember my colonoscopy. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> I it's, you know, it's a personal thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. I'm with you on that. And, you know, for the procedurist, the individual doing the procedure, to have me moving around uncomfortably right. could result in injuries from doing the procedure that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Okay. The third thing uh, where benzodiazepines are truly first line uh, is a seizure problem called status epilepticus, which means the seizures are back-to-back and are not resolved uh, spontaneously. Okay. Uh, benzodiazepines are uniquely valuable in that regard. Benzodiazepines are also used for a variety of other reasons. Of course, anxiety, mm-hmm. insomnia, uh, where they're used uh, as well as a related group of compounds called the Z drugs, uh, which also affect the right. GABA receptor. Muscle relaxation and some movement uh, disorders. Uh, but there... And those, those kind of categories, outside of the first-line uses, the first-line uses are all temporary, short-term. Right. The second-line user, uh, you know, the second-line uh, movement disorders, muscle relaxation, anxiety states, and insomnia, because of their duration of these problems over a period of time, one might be uh, thinking that I, one might use those benzodiazepines for a very long period of time. The seductive thing about benzodiazepines is that they work and can work extremely well in the short term. And as I mentioned previously, uh, we as medical providers have the assumption, well, if they work short term, why not do that long term, even in the absence of really strong studies to say that that's a really great idea. For uh, medications that are used for so-called peripheral problems like blood pressure, Mm -hmm. diabetes, predominantly peripheral problems. Uh, That may work just fine, but neuroactive agents, the neurologic system, the central nervous system uh, in particular makes adaptations and adjusts itself to the exposure to these uh, chemicals that are effective in the central nervous system. And this would be like homeostasis, what you're referring to. It's moving towards homeostasis. Okay. But then peculiar things can get involved where we end up with these uh, peculiar symptom states that are bothersome mm-hmm. or even overwhelming to benzodiazepine survivors. So the idea that one might use benzodiazepines for weeks, months, and years, uh, while attractive on the surface uh, in the sense that, yeah, we want to manage these difficult circumstances for patients over time, medical providers' intentions are typically good. Uh, but we don't recognize very typically that at least for a subset of individuals, that can create more problems than benefit. And there's the real issue. And because we have no current ability to understand or recognize uh, when side effects are side effects mm-hmm. rather than the evolution of a new medical problem, for example... Okay. Because this is paired with the possibility that severe adverse outcomes may take place, 
I think it's really important to offer all individuals on benzodiazepines for weeks or longer the opportunity to taper and discontinue these medications because we may only recognize the adverse effects of benzodiazepines by looking backwards after the tapering process has taken place. Okay. And we won't recognize it until that that occurs or we misinterpret the symptoms that are evolving over time. There's an interesting study. Yeah. Uh, Heather Ashton did this in Mm -hmm. 1987, took 50 consecutive patients who wanted to go off of benzodiazepines. And they described that their anxiety while they were taking benzodiazepines mm-hmm. was typically worse. And then when you came, they came off of benzodiazepines, the anxiety improved in large part. After the withdrawal period? Or? After the withdrawal okay. period. So there may actually be a clinical syndrome, which I would term benzodiazepine-induced hyperangiogenesis. Okay. generating of anxiety. Just like we have right. now started to recognize for opioids, opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Increased and, and if you don't mind me saying, for those of us who have been through this, I kind of want to just say a proverbial duh. Um, yeah. we, we, we've experienced this extreme anxiety for most of us have been through it. It's anxiety that several of us have never had anxiety diagnosis before. And well, then we faced this anxiety that was overwhelming and something beyond our, our even perceptions. And yeah, after withdrawal, it does abate. But during the time, it is extreme. Oh, yeah. And, you know, but but picture this. You know, this yeah. is my, my personal understanding of all this. I've been in medicine, what is that, 38 years or something like that? Addiction for 31 years. And I figured this out two years ago. <laughs> And I like to think of myself as somebody who's trying to pay attention. Oh, yeah, I I would agree. So I think it's really important for survivors to kind of be patient with all of us because it doesn't fit. Benzodiazepines reduces anxiety. It doesn't cause anxiety. But you can have a conversation with with your medical provider, uh, reminding that individual that it took until four, five, six certainly no more than 10 years ago, to recognize that opioids can cause pain. Yeah. Uh, now we're starting to recognize that benzodiazepines can cause anxiety. One other thing about that study, by the way, 20% of the individuals, of the, of the mm-hmm. 50 individuals, uh, actually had agoraphobia okay. that developed during benzodiazepine yes. use yeah. and improved also. And agoraphobia is that fear syndrome, which keeps people in the house because okay. it's so overwhelming. And so, you know, this, you got to pay attention to that kind of a thing because it's very real. And, and, yeah. and to date, it has not been addressed successfully in the medical community. Well, and, and, and I know you've talked about other mechanisms at play, but of course we go back to the, the primary one that was first, you know, which was a downregulation of GABA receptors and the effect on GABA within the body. Does it, from from your standpoint as as a medical professional, does it make sense that that though this hyper anxiety, if those receptors were downregulated via homeostasis or of the use of the drug, and that what coming off them, those now downregulated receptors are no longer able to receive that inhibitory message, that calming message like they did before, 
that that could lead to an increase in anxiety from from a physiological standpoint. And as a layperson, I'm trying to explain it the best I can. But does that make sense from a, from a medical standpoint? Absolutely, it does. Okay. But it is probably altogether incomplete. Probably going to end up being a simple construct that doesn't thoroughly explain okay. what's Good. going on. And I know you're aware that glutamate is involved in this particular right. aspect as well. And it reflects the AMPA receptor, the NMDA receptor, the stimulating mm -hmm. uh, neurophysiology of the brain, which also adapts in the presence of benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines pushing the stimulation part of the brain down, so reactively, the neurophysiology of the stimulation part of the brain is going to amp up. And so when you remove benzodiazepines, you, you now have a neuroadapted system where there's downregulation of GABA and upregulation of the uh, glutamate system, and you've got a, a amped up uh, system. But some of that may occur really with kind of an injury kind of perspective in the sense that those changes are durable rather than something that might resolve, which is what we assume might be the case when we use the word withdrawal syndrome. Okay. I understand that. You know what? We're going to wrap this up for today's, and then we're going to pick this up again in next week's episode. So again, Steve, thanks for coming, joining me for this first part, and let's invite them to come back next time. Thank you very much, Steve. Appreciate it. And that concludes the first part of our conversation. Many, many, many thanks to Dr. Wright for taking the time to sit with us for this interview. His knowledge, expertise, and fresh insight are invaluable. Please, tune in next week for the second part of this conversation. And now for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical, health, or psychological advice, nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. And that closes out this episode. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.